This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. Giant Robot Smashing Into Other Giant Robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Dan Martell. Hey, Dan. Hey, what is up? How's it going? I was wondering if you could maybe just give us a general sense of who you are and what you do. Yeah, so right now, uh, CEO and founder of Clarity. So we're a marketplace for business advice. So that's what I do today. We're venture-backed. Yeah, this is my fifth technology company I've started. The last two are venture-backed. The last three got to scale and got acquired. And pretty much that's all I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And I've invested in 33 companies as an angel investor now. So some pretty cool companies like Unbounce and Intercom, which is pretty popular on the yeah. dev side. Udemy. Um, we're Intercom around. customers. Yeah, no, I mean... As soon as I saw the product, I was like, oh, because we, we built a lot. I think a lot of technology folks that are like, I need a better way to do messaging and kind of customer development and stuff. So mm-hmm. it was a natural one. And then proud father of two new little boys, one and two. So that's kind of me. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So you have a little bit of um, uh, project ADD perhaps? Yeah. I mean, somebody asked me that why I always, you know, it's usually the three-year mark where I build them and I sell them. You know, I think it's just always reassessing my life mission and my goals Mm -hmm. and sometimes, you know, wanting to tweak that. And if the opportunity is great, you know, I guess it comes down to my projects don't define me. I I learned that a long time ago because I I think a lot of people the hard way, if you know, their business is who they are. And if their business went away, they'd they'd almost go into a depression. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. So that, that happened to me once. So, yeah. um, So did you learn to disassociate from that because of by necessity? Yeah, because I had to go see a psychologist and made me walk around with a rock in my pocket because I was getting anxiety attacks. After I sold my company and was a millionaire, I was depressed. It was just messed up. I was wow. just a messed up situation. Why were you depressed after? Because you had nothing to do? It's the first time in my life I woke up in the morning and nobody cared if I got out of bed. Hmm. You know, and it's, it's a weird feeling when you just, you put so much of your worth and your conversations and your friendship around that thing you created and then that's no longer there. Mm-hmm. Is it was just this really weird spot. So I, I, you know, I, I likened it after to a few sessions with my therapist to like probably losing a child. Right mm-hmm. at that point, I wasn't a father, but you know, I, it felt it felt similar. It's interesting how it seems like starting a company and succeeding is so hard that it kind of takes this obsession. Like you almost need. It seems, like, it seems like you need to be that that into it, and yet it can have such like awful consequences on you mentally. Yeah, there's there's this guy named Jerry Colonna who's one of the top CEO coaches. I've never spent time with him, but I've heard him interviewed a couple of times and he spoke at an event I was at. And he talks about, you know, this guy that uh, is a pottery dude and he wants to create the most exquisite glaze. And he tried for years, his whole life, essentially 50 years. And eventually he got fed up because it was never working. He walked into the fire and then the next day his assistant found you know, him dead, essentially his ashes and this, this piece of pottery that had the most exquisite, exquisite glaze on it, you know, and you could ask yourself, do you want to sacrifice yourself for this, this pursuit? Mm. Sometimes that's exactly what it takes, mm-hmm. you know, just be honest about it. So, it, but it seems like you've sort of figured out how to get the glaze without throwing yourself in the fire. Uh, I don't know, man. I honestly don't know. Like, you know, when I, I'm friends with Travis from Uber and I seen how, I pretty much didn't hear from him for two years, right? Yeah. Like he, you know, and, and he was one of our investors in my last company, Flowtown. And I asked myself, it's like, do I have that in me to put everything on the line, right? And, uh, you know, for me, it's no. 
right? And I think it's, it's the day that my son was born and, and now my other son. So, you know, I think I've just lived many lives in a very short period that I feel like I've got perspective and, you know, having more zeros in my bank account isn't going to make me happier. Mm-hmm. And that's just where I'm at. So I still want to create and have meaningful impact and, and strive for huge outcomes. Mm-hmm. It's just not at the risk of my personal relationships or my health and stuff like that. Yeah. That that like more zeros in the bank account thing. I feel like everyone sort of knows that logically or has heard that logically. Like that doesn't make you happier, but it's the hardest thing to internalize. It's it's almost I call it uh, Maslow's law of entrepreneurship. Okay. So you know, there's this Maslow's law of happiness or kind of self actualization. There's like these base things that you need to get to that point. Yeah. And that's the same thing with entrepreneurship. It's like you don't realize how unimportant money is until you have it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I could tell you, but until I give you a check for a million bucks, it's in your bank account to realize you probably wouldn't have to work for the next 10 years that you then ask yourself, well, if I don't have to, I mean, th- the lesson with clarity, you know, it was this project, this passion that turned into a business, but it started when I sat down with one of the co-founders of Square, this amazing guy, Randy Reddig, um, sold my company Flowtown. I was working there. Um, you know, I was, I call it vesting in peace. So I was vesting in peace <laughs> and we had lunch and he, you know, what do you want to do next? Everybody asks that. What are you going to do next? And yeah. I said, I don't know, but you know, I've got a few ideas. He goes, well, here's a way to ask it. If you had made a billion dollars, what would you do next? And at the time he was worth a billion dollars. Right. Mm. And I was like, crazy question, man. You know, that's a crazy question. And that's when I started thinking, well, it would have to be something that I felt was a problem that needed to be fixed. And I was one of the most uniquely qualified people in the world to fix it. And that if I did at scale, it would have a huge impact. And for me, that was clarity, right? Mm. And I had a few other projects. I was kind of messing around with three different ideas. And the one that prevailed through that filter was this mission of regardless of where you live or who you know, getting quality advice shouldn't be uh, something that's not accessible to to you. Hmm. It's interesting because it's like the question or the experience of having enough money to not worry about it takes away this idea that you're working because you have this external need of money to survive. And you pull that away and you realize, yes, but there's still actually this intrinsic motivation that I have. I wasn't just getting up and going to work and doing things because I needed to eat dinner. There's other things in there. Like it's part of being happy and satisfied is making stuff and doing things. I think so. I think, I think you know, I used to be, be all about like entrepreneurship. And now I realize that anybody that's a creator, anybody that is willing to create something and put it out to the world to be judged and criticized, mad respect. Like we're friends, we get each other. Mm-hmm. So that would be people leading an initiative, artists, authors, bloggers, podcasters. Like you've decided to craft something, put it out to the world and accept the feedback I think that's a a really unique perspective that 95% of the population never have that really allows me to connect with somebody on that level. And that that one form is entrepreneurship, and then there's several others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it was Ira Glass who talked about it's important to create things because otherwise you become just defined by your taste, Mm. by your your opinion of what what other people have created. But it's such a different experience to actually create the thing yourself. That's a great point because some people are just that. They're, they're reporting, they're curators, they're aggregators, but they haven't actually created. Although I would say curators are creating, you know, in their own fashion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, partial credit. Yeah, partial, a little bit. Um, so can you talk more about the Maslow for entrepreneurs, the Maslow's hierarchy? Yeah, hierarchy? I, I mean, it's just a joke because, you know, there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, and I mean, it's basic stuff like water at the bottom. There's kind of like a pyramid in the bottom. There's like, you know, water, shelter, friendships, relationships, all this stuff. And at the very top, once you kind of achieve those things, you have self-actualization. And, and I would argue that great 
companies and groups, organizations allow their their tribe, their community, their employees to to get to that point where mm. the base needs are met. And I feel like Thoughtbot does a great job. You know, they're probably an example of that, and For sure. many other companies in the space. So. In entrepreneurship, there's kind of the same thing. There's, there's, you know, I think in the beginning, step one is to make a dollar, right? Like, let's make some money because I don't want to have to go back to my normal job. And then eventually make enough money to sustain yourself as a business owner. But then you have this need to want to create other jobs. So there's a big difference between freelancer and somebody that creates employment for other people other than themselves. And, mm. and I feel you keep leveling up to the, the highest level where I feel I've been blessed to kind of discover, which is when there's no need to create and it's out of pure feeling of purpose and then just trying to discover that passion and the purpose and all these things that come together and, and people like people I want to work with and, mm. and feeling like I'm doing something that's going to stretch me and, and be super scary and pass my comfort zone. Mm. What would you do? So you could tell somebody that this never started a business to think through that filter, but it's so foreign of a concept day one that, you know, it's like, okay, well, let's start with making a dollar. Let's start with getting to a point where you're sustaining your, your income so you don't have to go back to your job. So that's kind of the idea. You know, I just, I've never really written about it. It's just more of, of something I think about when I talk about different concepts. It's probably easier said than done, but I wonder if starting with that idea of creating something that you want to exist in the world might end up being more successful approach. Like you might totally. end up getting it, the dollar. It yeah, it totally is. But the problem is, is it's hard to get people to buy into that when, you know, what you usually see is somebody, you know, Michael Gerber wrote a book called The E-Myth and he called it. Oh, yeah. Love that book. Yeah. It's entrepreneurial. He calls them entrepreneurial seizures. You've got like, you know, a programmer that decides, you know, they're, they're, they do the thing and they want to start a business. And there's a difference between working in the business and on the business. And mm-hmm. I feel that's the part that'll stop people. They, they know the craft and, and they're scared enough just trying to make a living doing that. They wouldn't saying, follow your passion. It's like, well, what if I'm passionate about flipping rocks? It's like, hey, man, somebody out there, if you become the world's best rock flipper, somebody's going to pay you a premium for that. Maybe Larry Ellison has some kind of rock garden on his Japanese house and he'll hire you for like a bazillion dollars. So, yep. For every interest, there's a blog and a forum somewhere for people oh, yeah, that are into that's that. The beauty of this world. Yeah. I think it's awesome. I love that in particular because I I tend to get obsessed with like a hobby of some kind. And like I love just being able to like dive deep on it for a couple of weeks and like read hundreds of forum posts and things like that. And it's just so easy. I love it. But that that is a skill. I mean, I take for granted my approach to solving problems, but it's the same thing. It's it's becoming a lifelong learner and and dissecting the ability. I mean, it's funny, but Tim Ferriss wrote a book called The 4-Hour Chef, and in it he talks about this principle called DISC, and I would say that that approach to learning a topic can be applied to more than just food and cooking. It can be applied to anything. And one aspect of that is finding people that are world class in that thing and dissecting or working backwards from what they did. So you don't have to learn the long way. And I mean, blogs is an example of that, right? If mm-hmm. somebody's ha- have written that. So that, that skill, I mean, again, it's, it's part of the entrepreneurial, you know, hierarchy of needs, teaching people how to learn is in there because at first they feel like they got to do it all themselves. Right. You can tell them not to, right. but until they go through that pain, they're, they're not ready for the solution. Totally. That definitely takes a mindset shift. Mm-hmm. And that's the e-myth thing. You're used to like working in the business. Like if, if more needs to get done, I, I have to do more. It's like, totally. yes, but what if you had some other people that helped you? No, I can't hire somebody smarter than me because they won't want to work for me. Mm. Right. You hmm. hear that all the time. It's like, what if I outsource it and they do it wrong or they make me look stupid? It's like maybe or maybe they do it better than you because they play at the things you work. What a crazy idea. 
Mm-hmm. So, so you mentioned a moti- one, one motivation for the stuff you're doing now is to push you out of your comfort zone. Can you think of some examples where that's happened recently? Oh, it happens all the time. I mean, so I'll start back when I was younger. So I have kind of a crazy lifestyle, you know, growing up. I call it, I had a colorful childhood, but pretty much from the time I was 11, I was uh, taken out of my home and put into foster care. And by the time I was 17, I'd found myself in jail twice, drug-related charges. So I had a pretty intense upbringing that that has really shaped my life. You know, at 17, after spending six months in in adult jail, I got sentenced to rehab and I discovered computers, right? And I also Mm. discovered uh, the reason why this facility worked, it was called Portage, was because it was this really unique place where all the staff were ex-drug addicts. Right. Mm. So this concept of getting advice from people that had been there before yeah. was something I didn't realize I learned at 17 that happened to be actually a really great business lesson. I mean, just in general, I, I joke because I talk to these I go back every three months to talk to these kids that are there today. I've been doing it for 15 years. Mm. But I always say, like, you know, you guys, if you guys ever decide to start a business, you're probably the most qualified people in the world because you're risk takers. You're obviously uh, able to self-sustain. You don't give a crap about anybody else's opinion, mm. right? Like there's all these fundamental levels. I just said you got to find something you're passionate about that isn't illegal. And, <laughs> and for me, it was computers. Yeah. And, and I, I feel blessed that I discovered that at such a young age. And and since then, you know, I've rebuilt the relationship with my family and my friends and luckily my community. And, and since then, you know, I've built companies that have employed over 500 people. So it's kind of... Um, why I do what I do and and kind of that being scared is just part of my DNA. Mm. Um, so things that I've done since then is, you know, obviously share that story publicly. It took me 10 years to ever feel comfortable enough to do that. Yeah. Um, I realized that the more vulnerable the story, the wider the appeal. Yeah. I get to connect with people on a better level when mm-hmm. I when I kind of share that story. Absolutely. So that's been awesome. But that was super scary. Uh, you know, raising money. I, I got Mark Cuban's money, you know, kind of important dude in the world would not want to mismanaged or, you know, frustrate Mark in any way possible. Yeah. Cause I plan to be in this game for, for the rest of my life. So, you know, raising money to trying to hire people that are just, you know, really should be CTO of Twitter, Facebook, or, you know, any other major company. And, and here I am trying to convince them to come work with me. So it's just on a daily basis is asking yourself, what are the goals you're trying to get done? And what's that level of uncomfort, you know, you know, some people, there's a guy named John Maxwell, he, he is a leadership expert, and he talks about the magic zone and the comfort zone. He said the best place you want to be in your life is inside your magic zone, but outside your comfort zone. Hmm. And to me, outside my comfort zone is anytime I'm scared. So I, I try to say yes before my brain kicks in and tries to reason why I shouldn't do something that scares me. Yeah, totally. Hmm. You just said you think you'll be in the game for the rest of your life. Do you think you'll reach a point where it just is not as interesting? No, I mean, the game for me is creating, right? And that could be either me leading a company like I've been doing my whole life or continue to support others through investing, which I've done as well. And really maybe just write more and spend more time teaching everybody the things that I've learned so that they could. I mean, that is truly it's kind of why I started Clarity. One of my passions is just seeing other people scare themselves, right? Like yeah. the funnest thing for me is to push somebody out of a plane with a parachute you <laughs> right. know, or, you know, take them skiing and, and drop down that double black that they never thought they could do or, you know, or start a business and quit their job. Like there's just something that I, I get so much um, joy out of that, that I could see myself doing that. And, and Clarity allows me to do that at scale where I've built this platform for those people that are scared that, that don't know um, that have no network of friends that are that are doing that to mm. connect and plug and get advice from those around the world. So, 
I'll always be doing that. And that's what I mean by this game. Yeah, it's I like that that what you mentioned about clarity just there is that like having friends who are doing the things you want to do. Like I've noticed like this shocking impact where spending more time with certain people really has a gravitational pull on my life. So like like positively or negatively. And it's like even a, a spending a week with a friend on vacation just like sort of brings me to their like we sort of our our pulls pull towards each other and we end up at like the middle. Uh, like the median in between. And it, it's, yeah, well, there's that quote that says you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Totally, right? yeah. So I wrote a blog, I think it was yesterday, I wrote this thing about called Friendventory because I was, I was getting this a lot. And I, and I truly believe, you know, if you haven't caught on to that, that, you know, who you spend time with and, and that positive, you know, impact. I, I was lucky when I was 17, I discovered that lesson. And since then, my life has changed. But not consciously taking Friendventory of who you spend time with and say, you know what, this person's harmful or this person's always negative or I feel this person never supports me and that could be your parents i mean let's mm. be honest yeah. you know most entrepreneurs did not come from a, a prim and proper upbringing like there's a reason why they feel that they can create something in the world where other people would be paralyzed in fear mm. and you know how do you do that in a way that is not come off as being a dick right like how do you say to your friends and and to me that the reasoning I say is, you know, if, if they were my real friends, they would want to see me follow my passions and pursuits. And if that means, you know, I can't spend every weekend with them getting drunk at the barbecue because I'm busy trying to create or, or, or you know, travel or whatever, mm-hmm. and they get upset with that, then are they really my friends, right? And on mm-hmm. the family side with, you know, like a mother or father, you pretty much just got to say, look, like, th- it's not a positive experience when we hang out. I love you. It's it, it, my friend, um, Dan Dapani, he's like the coolest Buddhist monk, he calls it affectionate detachment, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. I care about you. I love you, but I'm just not going to, I don't need to kind of be around you as much as somebody that was healthier or positive. And that is probably the most powerful thing somebody can do because the truth is, is conversations drive thoughts, thoughts drive actions. And if your actions are mediocre, you got to look at the conversations you've been having. Yeah. I also just feel like it sets your scale for what's reasonable. It's like if you have sort of a handful of friends that their achievement level sort of sets your your idea for like about where you can be. Like maybe I can be as successful as my, you know, most successful friend as opposed that, to the drafting effect you kind of talked about. Right. It's either up or down. Yeah. It's magnet. Right. I mean, that's probably the most powerful thing when people say, well, what did you learn about moving to San Francisco? Right. Because I grew up in a small town in eastern Canada mm-hmm. and it was thinking big. And I'm not saying like. Just, oh, think big. Yay. Be power. Again, Maslow, that hierarchy of entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. like <laughs> you, the way to think big isn't just to say it. The best way is to go and meet somebody that's a peer. So I, I was fortunate. I land in San Francisco 2008. I meet Drew Houston from mm-hmm. Dropbox, Joe Jebbia and Brian from Airbnb, Eric Reese from The Lean Startup, and et cetera, Ryan Holmes from Hootsuite, et cetera, et cetera. These guys are now running billion dollar plus valuation companies and they're normal dudes, no different than you and I, mm-hmm. right? And because of that experience, I can never think less than a billion impact company. Yeah. I just can't. It's just not part of my thinking. I, I think that bit you just you said where they're just normal people is important too. Like it gives you that realization, like these people are not wildly smarter or more driven or or whatever than I am. Like they're just they're also, you know, normal they're humans. They're passionate, they're persistent, Absolutely. they're creative, but no more, no less than anybody else. I mean, Steve Jobs was interviewed once and it's it's you know, and he says the most powerful thing is when you realize that this whole world, everything you see, everything you use, were created by people no different than you and I. Hmm. Yeah. Really? I mean, the iPhone was created by three, 400 people. You know what I mean? And, and individually, they were, there's nothing unique about them per se. They just decided to create. 
Mm-hmm. It sounds like your blog is probably one of these things, but do you have any sort of formal habits for self-reflection, like meditating or journaling or something like that? So I'm a total fraud if I say the blog. I decided four days ago that I need to blog every day for 30 days. Okay. Uh, so I'm on day four. Nice. And, uh, so, so far, so good. So I, I, I have blogged in the past, but by the end of this process, I would have created more blogs in the whole history <laughs> combined body of work. Um, you know, what I try to do is kind of, I have this morning ritual that I've been doing. I, I just feel like it's crazy. This is one of the weirdest pieces of advice I ever got. Um, but yet the most powerful. And it was from a friend of my dad's. I started business again, 17, 18 years old at the time. And he was like the only business person that I knew. Right. Other than that, there was my uncle, but he was in the mafia and probably not a good guy to turn to. So my, my dad's friend, um, Wayne, uh, I email him or at the time I called him and I said, Hey Wayne, I know you've been in business your whole life. You know, those guys that have just always had businesses, you know, motel, like whatever restaurants. And I said, could I take you out for uh, breakfast and pick your brain? And he was just like a little torn back and we go for breakfast. And I said, you know, I'm thinking of starting a business and you know, I've been tinkering around on this stuff and I, you know, you've been in business. I'm just curious. What's, you know, if you could say one piece of advice, what would it be? And I totally caught him off guard. And after like two minutes of kind of silence, he goes, habits. Hmm. And I was like, I was expecting something revolutionary, enlightening. And when he said habits, I was so disappointed. Mm -hmm. It took me like years to understand what he meant. Mm -hmm. And it truly is that it is. If you create these habits of spending time with great people, self-reflection, working out, not following your gut, et cetera, et cetera. And you just continue to improve those habits and, and you kind of it's almost like your default state. That is the most powerful thing that you can do. So on the self-reflection side, my morning ritual, which I continue to tweak is, you know, I have kind of like a vision board, but not, you know, like just kind of like, what does my ideal day look like? How do I feel about it? I meditate for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I go to the gym, I read. Um, and I do all of that before I ever start, you know, working or anything like that. It's, and, and I would say each one of those have a different aspect of self-reflection. Yeah, absolutely. When you are meditating, what are you what are you thinking about or not thinking about? Not nothing. I mean, I, yeah. I use uh, this app called Headspace on my iPhone. <laughs> Me too. I yeah, just started using great. that. I'm a big fan. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny because one time I went out with my buddy. We were uh, hiking, and I said, "Hey, man, do you want to meditate when we get to this waterfall?" And he was a little like, "Okay, you know, like we're two big grown, men, you know, like man's men." Mm -hmm. And we sit there, and I thought I could just play Headspace, and it would guide us through the meditation. Mm -hmm. And my phone didn't have reception, and I didn't realize it couldn't download. So I tried to narrate it oh think about that <laughs> this right? sounds awful oh it's weird it's so <laughs> weird we're two dudes sitting on a rock and next to a waterfall and i'm talking out loud right no it was just weird but anyways headspace is what i use and yeah you know if you've done it it's, you don't you try to think of something and nothing at the same time and just kind of go through those exercises but it's being mindful and i think that is Again, that hierarchy of enlightenment and understanding, mm -hmm. uh, super powerful and scary when you first discover how much your brain is doing without your control. Yeah, yeah. That that advice about habits being powerful, I think, is so true. Uh, I just keep discovering it again and again. Like, I can't believe... But underwhelming, right? Like, Right, yeah, exactly. The best advice in your whole life as a business person, what would it be? Habits. What? Yeah, but I, I just think there's incredible power in anything that you can get yourself to do regularly the cumulative benefits of something just go nuts. If it's good for you. And right. and it yeah, just yeah. and and then all of a sudden you're not digging into that willpower bank of power because mm -hmm. it becomes just an automatic reaction or state to what you do. Yeah. Honestly, one of my favorite things about this podcast is that we do it every week. 
And like, I don't think about it. We just always make sure it happens. And, you know, after a hundred and something of them, they, you start getting the hang of it. And I love creating habits like that that I can stick to and, and benefit from. That's awesome. Yeah. Hmm. So talk about clarity a little bit. I'd love to, man. You're yeah. going to keep me up for that. Yeah. Um, so the idea first came when, after I sold my last company, it was end of 2011. Uh, a company was called Flowtown. We were a social media marketing application. We got acquired by a demand force that eventually got caught by, acquired by Intuit. And after we announced it, I got a bunch of influx. This happens. I call them champagne problems. You know, all of a sudden you get announced that you get acquired and you get all these inbound requests for your time and your opinion and coffee. And and maybe it's the Canadian in me that I just can't say no. Mm-hmm. And I feel bad saying this publicly because listeners are going to start emailing me. But I just always reply. If anybody's ever emailed me, it's me. I don't have an assistant. You know, if I can be helpful, I am. Mm-hmm. And you know, I couldn't read these 5,000 word emails that people were sending me. You know, right. you know you've been there. Like you, for sure. I don't know what they expect. And I'm like, how about we do a phone call? And that wasn't going to scale. So I built this simple tool that was a URL. It was clarity.fm slash Dan Martell. And it was a form that had your name, your number, and the reason you wanted to chat. And it would build like a call list. And that was the first version of Clarity. I built it myself as a productivity tool to deal with all of these requests for my, my time, essentially, and advice. And what was neat is I could then, if I'm walking between meetings or I had a free moment, I'd hit start calls. It would call my cell number and call the person, read to me what the person wanted to talk about. And if they answered, we talked. They didn't get my cell number. It was all proxied through a 1-800 number. Mm. So there's privacy, which is great. And if I was driving, I just hit start and just drive for an hour and a half. And I'd talk to five, six, seven people. Mm. And it was awesome. Yeah. Um, The moment that I realized that there was more there was one night for fun after dinner, I went to the, the roof of my condo and I tweeted out my clarity URL. So prior to that, I was just using it in my email one on one. I wasn't it wasn't public. And I said, if, if you need startup advice, you know, put your name here and I'll give you a call in a few minutes. Mm. And the queue just went nuts. And I didn't even notice because I hit start calls and then I was on the call. But what was crazy is I was talking to people in Korea, Africa, South America. People have been following me on Twitter for six years, mm. never interacted. And here I am talking to them and creating a relationship and I spent three and a half hours, kind of like it's like a podcast. On, it's like it's like probably like speed dating, yeah, or like yeah, yeah. A radio show where you have callers, mm-hmm. and it just felt so energizing on my end because you know talking about yourself and helping other people is an energizing experience for sure. But I was sitting on the top of my condo looking around. I was you know in Bernal in San Francisco up on this mountain, essentially looking at the city, and realized if what if I could tap into everybody in this city and make them accessible to the world the way I just did to my followers? And what would that mean? And you know, knowing how my experience and what I've been through, being able to give somebody that's just starting off or hasn't even started that perspective. What would that have meant to me as a 17-year-old entrepreneur? You know, as much as I love Wayne for giving me the habits advice, I mean, being able to have talked to somebody that had built and raised money and built tech companies, I'd probably be three or four times further in my career than I am today mm-hmm. just from having that experience. And that was the moment I, I said, that's a problem worth solving at scale. And you know what? It turns out it can be a huge business if you, you know, charge a fee and take a fee. It's like a marketplace. And uh that's why I started it. And it's just been a wild ride. We've, we've completed over 200,000 calls in the last 16 months in 85 countries. Mm. And we continue to just scale and grow 20% month over month. And we've added some new membership products and video. And it's just been really just a lot of fun. So that's the origin story of Clarity. And that's why I do it. 
Yeah, that's cool. Do people come to you saying, hey, I want to be on like the supply side of this? Like I want people to call me and ask for advice? Yeah, so the way I did is the first, you know, marketplaces are super, super tricky. Yeah. Uh, I pretty much have a PhD in building marketplaces at this point. Again, on the shoulders of giants, like some of the best marketplaces like Airbnb and Thumbtack and Fiverr, Miha from the CEO of Fiverr's on Clarity. And I, I paid him to talk to him about building liquidity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recruited the first thousand experts, hand-to-hand combat, like friends of friends, conferences, said, these are the people I would turn to for advice. So could you be on Clarity? Um, Eric Reese, uh, Dave McClure on fundraising, like all these amazing guys. Mm-hmm. And then um, probably a year after we launched, we opened it up a bit and then we took applications and now we have a whole vetting process. Mm-hmm. But the neat part is that there's one thing about having an account on Clarity, but to be discovered through our product, you have to be great. The search is based on who you are, social reputation, number of calls, ratings, reviews. I mean, I I look at Clarity and it's so awesome because we really have the only place in the world that verifies what people know, right? Hmm. Not like LinkedIn endorsements or whatever those are called or reviews. This is like people that have paid to talk to that person about a topic has left a review or rating about that experience. And I think we have probably one of the best marketplaces for that in the world. Yeah, <laughs> this is interesting. I'm thinking of how like there's this like uh, the term like the sharing economy where you take something like that a lot of the time is not being used and you open it up to more people. And, yeah, like, it this- doesn't really apply for clarity because it's the person's time. Yeah. So I've, I believe I tried to, you know, as a marketer, I'm like, how do I get myself mentioned on every one of these blog posts? Right. But, uh, you know, it applies more to uh, unused asset and sure. Know, if the, and that's why we kind of moved to this like Clarity Live model where we'd still do the calls, but we have this monthly membership that's uh, kind of like webinars mm-hmm. and the experts do them and we record them and then people can consume them after the fact. And then we do a rev share with the experts. So, you know, the, we essentially the, the sharing economy is their knowledge and experience. We just are slowly building a way to package that up. Mm-hmm. Cool. So how would you evaluate your leadership and stewardship of this company so far? I think, I mean, I'm probably my own worst critic, but at the same time, when I look at my emails and the impact we've had and, you know, the conversation I've had with my investors and kind of the really cool stuff that I can't talk about that's going on, I feel, I feel proud. I mean, it's been two and a half years since we started it and we've done a lot, but again, I'm going to be my own worst critic in regards to, I feel like we could have always done more and I feel like things I should have learned faster, I didn't, et cetera, but yeah, I know. I'm I'm a product guy, and I feel the product rocks. That's cool. That's very cool. Uh, what should I ask you that I haven't? I like talking about product development or okay. marketing. The, the one thing I've actually talked I talked once about this, and and afterwards everybody just kind of like, how do I get your slides? And I still haven't put them out there, so I'll probably blog about it at some point. But you know, it's our unique approach to product development because you know we are a venture back startup. Our core metric is growth. It's a very unique place that most bootstrap startups, uh, and I was one of them in the past, and I'm, I have a lot of friends that have bootstrap. Bootstrapping and venture backed are two different priorities and metrics, et cetera. So w- the way we do it, we call it the Clarity Product uh, Roadmap. It's one part design thinking. So at the D School of Design at Stanford, they created this concept called design thinking and it's a methodology and IDEO uses it. So it's one part design thinking, one part lean startup and one part agile development. And essentially at the high level, we do two week product sprints, one metric, the whole team. Mm. We uh, do the ideation phase for the sprints are done on the Friday prior. So this is one of the design thinking um, concepts that I think is 
it's it's a duh once you hear it you shouldn't do ideation and prioritization in the same meeting if preferably not even in the same day Hmm. because you will not be as creative knowing that you got to do that secondary action (laughs) yeah that's right yeah no as soon as you hear it you're like of course yeah yeah that's true you're self-editing in your head right that sounds hard i don't want to like commit to doing that i don't want to do that that's a dumb idea i'm not even going to say it right yeah like when we talk about you know we have this problem you know here's a core metric you know for us we have a bunch but we focus on one per sprint let's call it uh right now it's expert driven signups eds how do we get people that land on an expert profile to sign up how do we get the expert to promote that profile etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's anything around moving that core metric mm-hmm. so the ideas i mean uh last friday so we're on our, our first week of the sprint uh were things like you know what if we got ashton kutcher as an expert and again you're not criticizing the idea but if it was part of the same meeting somebody wouldn't have thrown that out there's a nugget in there so you start then you group so the whole design thinking teaches you how to ideate and then group and curate and then ask yourself secondary questions and find the nuggets in all that. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that's been invaluable to get to a point where we then come up with our test, right? So this is kind of where the lean startup comes into play where, you know, we'll, we'll essentially as a team decide what are the top three initiatives or projects that we could um, kick off that could have a meaningful impact to that. Mm-hmm. And we'll figure out what's the least amount of effort to validate that there's a there there. Mm-hmm. And many times it's it's, it's adding some kind of call to action in a product flow, sending an email to a cohort of users. But it's not 90% of the time, it's not building the feature, hmm. right? Uh, sometimes it's creating clickable prototypes using Keynote and then using desktop sharing. We actually use Clarity to request calls to do user testing. And then we'll use uh, join.me to share the clickable prototypes. So the user actually sometimes thinks it's real because they're clicking, but right. it's not. And okay. getting that feedback. So I think that approach and then, so we have goals, right? So we say, here's the metric. Here's what we want to move it to. How, you know, here's what we need to be on Friday. Here's what we need to be the following Friday. On Wednesday, we ask ourselves, are we red, green, yellow? You know, so every project lead. Um, I actually heard someone on your podcast once say, I love this, say, the person who cares the most should lead it. Mm, yeah. Right? So totally. that's kind of the way we do it. If you care the most and there's a team of three people, you're the one that leads it and you own the metric and you report red, green, yellow. Is, do you feel confident that we're going to hit the number or are you yellow? Are you red? And if you're anything other, if you're red, that's really bad. That means I'm a bad manager personally because you shouldn't be red. And if you're yellow, the whole team stops their projects to get you back on track and we get everybody on track and then we hit goal. If somebody is yellow uh, two times in a row, then they pretty much quit. I've never fired anybody. They know when they should quit. Quit the company. Quit. Get off the team. Because you are not capable of planning, estimating, and executing. There's no good reason anybody should be yellow because we as a team have sat down and estimated and talked. And I don't mind once, but if you did it twice, there's something functionally wrong with the individual and they're not going to play well on our team. Is, so yellow means you think the metric is not going to move at the yellow end of the thing? Yellow means you're not even close to hit, getting whatever you need released on that date um, okay. to move the number. Okay. It's very it's very qualitative. That's why it's it's very simple. It's three colors. Yeah. But 
it's really that simple. And, and it's because we're all focused on the same number, there's no, the dependencies aren't there, right? Like we're all part of this as a team. And if you didn't identify you were stuck and bring it up sooner that you had to wait until our meeting on Wednesday, then again, that's, that's just part of, you know, you not being a good team player and, I see. and not proactively yeah. saying, Hey, this isn't working. We got to fix it now. It's everything. Yeah. It's saying, you know what? We all thought this, guess what? It turns out this is wrong. Okay, cool. Let's fix that. But if you wait till the Wednesday and you've executed for three days and you're not on track and you do that two times in a row where you, because when you're yellow on our team, everybody stops their projects to get you back on track. Interesting. Yeah, it's very different. So it's like if if I think, okay, we can reduce churn by doing this thing. But it's not just you. It's everybody talks and says, yeah, we we think that you're, you know, let's say you can reduce churn by 2% Mm -hmm. a month. Mm -hmm. We all agree. We all talk about implementation. Okay, go work on that. If you have to tell us on Wednesday that you're not even on track, then that's that's not good. Gotcha. Okay. Right. So we don't. It's not like we give you a rope and we hope you hang yourself. You know, uh, metaphorically speaking, in the product wise, but it's just you know those guys that you've worked with and they're just always not performing. Not really, actually. I've been pretty lucky. No, you, well, you're at top. <laughs> I mean, that's a, you guys are a plus. But I've seen this in many organizations where somebody can get in. They can actually perform really well on. You know, we do a, a pretty extensive recruiting process, but when it comes to just communication or collaboration, they fall short. Mm-hmm. That's where we have no tolerance for that. And we just say that from the beginning and they know, and yeah, we've had one It never, it happens very little, but we have had an issue where the person just said, I can't perform at this level. Mm-hmm. So I'm just not going to slow you guys down. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I think this is probably a good place to stop. Cool, man. But this has been awesome. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, for sure. No, I um, I appreciate you guys having me on. And Tom, I'm glad I get to meet you, even though you're the man behind the curtain. It's like the magical wizard. <laughs> and if anybody wants to reach out to me, it's just dan at clarity.fm, at Dan Martell on Twitter. Yeah. And my blog, which I've got 26 more days left at danmartell.com. <laughs> um, love comments, reply and read to everyone. So uh, I'd love to see you there. Awesome. Very cool. Cool. Thanks, Ben. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 118. Thanks for listening.